Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is the Enneagram. My guest is Hamid Ali, also known as A.H. Almas, his pen name. He is the founder of the Ridwan School and the Diamond Approach to Self-Realization. And under his pen name, he has authored, I think, around 20 books. They include such titles as Diamond Heart, Elements of the Real in Man, Diamond Heart, Freedom to Be, Space Cruiser Inquiry, True Guidance for the Inner Journey, Facets of Unity, the Enneagram of Holy Ideas, The Inner Journey Home, the Soul's Realization of the Unity of Reality, The Void, inner spaciousness and ego structure, and most recently, keys to the Enneagram, how to unlock the highest potential in every personality type. The last time I interviewed Hamid Ali was about 30 years ago, so I'm very much looking forward to this opportunity to connect with him again after so long. He's based in Northern California. And now, I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Hamid. It's a pleasure to see you again after so many years. Well, good to see you, <laughs> Jeff. It's been many years, decades. <laughs> and I think the interesting thing is for both of us, we're more or less on the, the same path that we were on when we encountered each other so many years ago. I know that those videos that we did, I think back in the 1980s, are still available uh, for people. Yeah, they're still available. Yeah, and the books we did them on have become classics at the present time. Yeah, your focus has consistently been, as best as I can tell, on the idea of the true self, the the actual essence of the human being. And now, uh, with your current work on the Enneagram, you're using the various personality types as ways of understanding the relationship between our life here on the physical plane and this magnificent essence that we all partake of, which is so much vaster than physical reality. Yeah, that, that, that is the interesting thing. That's what I try to do in all my teaching and in all my books is to bring out the treasures within us that many of us don't even suspect. Many of our viewers may not know about the Enneagram. It has become quite popular, I know, in recent years, but it's still, I suppose, uh, uh, even though it's popular, it's still somewhat on the fringes of culture. So, I suppose for starters, it's useful to say that it, it comes out of uh, the work of Gurdjieff. Yeah, it's uh, Gurdjieff is the first person, actually, who talked in the West about the Enneagram and made it 
a known th- symbol, known and included a kind of knowledge. And he said that he brought this knowledge from the East, all the way from what he called the Sarmoon, some kind of secret spiritual uh, you know, community that he was able to penetrate, get into. And he learned many things, and one of them is the knowledge of the Enneagram, which became part of the backbone of his work. My recollection is that you were exposed to this work through Claudio Naranjo, a psychiatrist who was sort of integrating modern psychiatry with the teachings of Gurdjieff and other esoteric schools. That's true. I was part of a group that Claudio Naranjo started in Berkeley in 1972 or something like that. And uh, it was a group of like, like 90 or 100 of us. And he, I had met him before in Esalen. You know, I was going to Esalen. He did a workshop on meditation and 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 Gestalt therapy. He was a Gestalt therapist, but he had just come from uh, uh, Bolivia, I think, where he met this mystic teacher, Oscar Echazo, and he studied with him for a couple of years, three years, and he learned from him the Enneagram in a slightly different way than Gurdjieff did. Gurdjieff did not talk about uh, types, Enneagram type, the nine types. Oscar Echazo talked about the nine types because the Enneagram has nine points. So each point is a type of personality for a human being. And so Naranto learned that from Oscar Echazo and he had some kind of experiences of illumination, all of that, that made him feel he could be a teacher, a spiritual teacher. So he did, and his teaching was mostly a combination of meditation, spiritual work, and, ex- and psychological processing and exercises. And in that process, he he took the skeleton of knowledge he took, he got from Ekchazo, and he filled it in with a great deal of psychological knowledge because he was a good psychologist, a psychiatrist, from the Kain Horne School of Self-Analysis. So he really expanded the knowledge of the Enneagram by making it, I mean, he added a lot more, and we did a lot of psychological work and processing about each one of the types and the time I spent with him. I gather it was after your work with Claudio Nerano that you created your own approach, the Diamond Approach and the Ridwan School, which you've been active in now for all these decades. Yeah, I, I started at the end of the 70s, you know, because I, uh, I work with him, work with other teachers, Tibetans, even Gurdjieffian teachers, I, you know, and learned all kinds of things. Then I started having my own process that happened on its, its own. I'm sure all the other had something to do with it. And that uh, developed into kind of an experience and understanding and a stream of revelations, basically, about what is our true inner reality, what is our true being, what is the essence of our consciousness. And 
I mean, it's still happening, Jeff. That's the interesting thing. <laughs> I mean, it hasn't stopped. It's like when you open this, the faucet doesn't stop to keep getting more. Some people think we're going to get to one state and get in and that's it. I got to that state, but that wasn't the end. It kept going. And, you know, since I've already knew the Enneagram from Cloud and Narano, it became integrated in the work I'm doing. So it's not the main part of the work I'm doing, but it is a fast, uh, one facet of the work of the Diamond Approach that I have de been developing through me. And I've been teaching, and we have a whole school, groups, books, and all that about it now. The Enneagram itself, uh, to the extent that people understand anything about it, they associate it, I think, with nine personality types, almost like you could say the 12 signs of astrology. You've got the nine types of, uh, of the Enneagram, but I know there's much more to it than that. The way it became popular as, is as a typology. There are nine types. And the Enneagram, interesting, the knowledge of the Enneagram. When you first hear about the description typologies, it, for, it seems so exact, so it fits so well. When the person feels, oh, you are a six, and, and, and they learn about all the traits and the pattern of the six, they feel seen sort of like, wow. <laughs> and then it adds to their knowledge other things that they haven't seen about themselves. That's how we learned how to uh, use it and, and uh, learn about ourselves. But the Enneagram, uh, let's say, there is the Enneagram what's called fixations. And that gives the, the system typology. But, and, but the Enneagram has many levels. You know, there are many Enneagrams. You know, Oscar Chazo for instance, had 90 Enneagram or something level. I only use uh, no, six or seven of them. And uh, so I had published a book about uh, one of the levels, which I call the Holy Ideas, and that is my book, Facets of Unity. That was, you know, 20 years ago or so. And, um, and this book came later, and I'm dealing with it. I'm using the, the affixation by trying to get to what is the underlying true thing about us that make us develop into that kind of character. That is called the type. I remember from our conversation some 30 years ago, we had an interesting discussion about the distinction between the essence, which is very universal. I think of it as the, the one mind that sees through the eyes of all living creatures versus what you called at that time the personal essence, which was universal but at the same time unique to each individual. And I, I imagine this, this is also related to, to your thinking about the Enneagram. It is. Well, okay, so we need to get into a certain area of my understanding of what I mean by essence. Some people call it the inner nature or true nature, right, or spiritual nature. Is that, uh, for, for me, in my experience, uh, the essential nature or the true nature is not just one thing not one 
homogeneous uh, experience. It's not like you experience pure consciousness and that's it. I mean, some people talk about that way. Oh, I'm experiencing pure awareness and that is I'm realized, I'm enlightened. Yes, there is that in my experience. We can experience ourselves as pure awareness and pure consciousness, and that is the essence. However, uh, true nature or the spiritual nature is a whole universe of experience. There's a whole universe with many dimensions, many forms, many ways of it appearing and being experienced, and all of them are true. All of them not creation of the mind, because the inner realm of the spirit does not uh, is not formed by our mind or by our history. It is its, its own inherent truth, and that inherent truth appears not just in the most well known these days in the spiritual circle as pure awareness, pure consciousness, but also appears as many. Uh, qualities of spirit. I call them qualities. For so pure. I. I. I first of all, I usually f uh, find that it is most useful to recognize uh, the essential, you know, spiritual nature, not as just conscious awareness, but as pure presence, presence of being. That the I am. So not. I am consciousness, conscious of itself, but I'm consciousness, conscious of its own being. Consciousness that, that knows it is. And that makes it a sense of presence, gives it a, a feeling of fullness, a texture, and uh, a richness to it. I mean, that just happened to be the direction my experience gone. Some people just go as light. Everything is light. That's also an expression of, uh, of spiritual nature. I experience light, but for me, presence, the fullness, the richness of presence, which appears like in the heart, appears as nectars, the flowing nectars. Love, love is not just a light, golden light. No, it's a, a flowing golden nectar. So, so it has more richness, more more substance to it. So that's first of all we need to, we need to understand, and that my approach has to do with presence, uh, which is consciousness, conscious of its being. You know, not just conscious that it's consciousness, conscious of its being, which is conscious of itself, and this uh, presence can differentiate itself into many forms and many qualities. And these forms and the qualities are the ones I discuss in this new book about the Enneagram, you know, the keys to the Enneagram. Because what I found out uh, is that each one of the types is somehow a reflection of one of those qualities. One of those forms that arise from pure presence. There are pure presence. There are presence. However, presence in a particular quality, in a particular uh, in the quality, has, has a texture, has density, has color, can have taste, can have smell. All of the uh, so all the sensory modality have their subtle counterpart 
which are then, which all spiritual people know about that, if somebody is, is deep into their spirituality. But instead of talking about uh, brilliant light or pure consciousness, here in this book, I discuss those qualities of being. And But I first, I do it by first looking at the type. What is it about the type that points us to that quality? You see, and that way we have access, possible access to this quality. You use the word nectar, uh, and I think in your book you also refer to the word honey in a similar way. And uh, in my experience, which is pretty limited, I think maybe for a few seconds I've had this sense of, of nectar. It is the sweetest, most pleasurable feeling I can imagine. It feels sort of like divine unity. It, it, it seems totally bliss, blissful. It is. Nectar is always blissful, pleasurable, sweet, like a heavenly sweetness. And there are many kinds, different kinds. So the nectars, the heart appears, but there are many other qualities that are not necessarily related to the heart. It might be related to the mind. The mind would be like clarity and knowingness and things like that, you know. But there are other things like strength and will and, you know, impeccability. All these are qualities of presence. And in, in your book, you describe, and I'm pretty sure you're relating to some of the breakthroughs that you yourself have had, the, these special feelings that are sometimes associated with the different energetic centers or chakras of, of the body as well when a breakthrough occurs. In this book, for some reason, I do describe some of my experiences, which I don't do in most of my books. In this book, I brought in like the experience of honey you mentioned. I, I bring it toward the beginning of the book. I discuss about the honey, the, I, which I, I describe as some kind of a blessing that I felt I received. That was a long time ago, toward the beginning of my journey. And the honey at that time was like a waterfall of honey. It's like, a, or a shower of honey. I was showered with a blessing. And but the blessing fell on me, on my body, through my body, through my consciousness, as this full, rich sweetness that when tasted, it tastes exactly like honey, like pure honey. And the interesting thing, too, you know, uh, Jeff, is that when I experienced that honey, that's full of honey, which was of course pleasurable and melting me, melting me and relaxing me and making me feel I am being blessed. I mean, I mean this is a wonderful thing. Besides being pleasurable, there are, there are sense of it, of divinity, like something coming from some divine place. Is that at the same time, there was a sound. The sound was the buzzing of the bees. Buzzing of the bees. I, like I was hearing the buzzing of the bees as the honey was melting me. And as, the, as, as I was hearing the buzzing of the bees and honey melting, it melted me so much that my consciousness was gone. I was completely erased. And I was gone. I don't know how long. An hour, two hours, whatever. You know, 
And the answer is I'm mentioning this honey and the bees because that is how I connect it, how I feel that the work I do or some of the work related to the Enneagram is connected to the, the origins of the Enneagram, which both Gurdjieff and Ikchaj will say they originated with this ancient spiritual school called the Sarmoon Dark. And the Sarmoon Dark means the beehive. And their idea is that the secret society, their job is their work to collect the inner nectar, the inner nectar of consciousness in them, to preserve it for time of humanity needs it. When it is needed, they re-inject it back in society in some kind of spiritual tradition or another. So some people, some scholars actually believe the mystical sides of most religion comes because of the influence of the Sermon, because they've been around for 10,000 years or so. That's, you know, I don't know if there is real proof for that, but that's the stories. And so I brought in that uh, experience because I felt if they are the beehives and they thought of themselves as jars of honey, walking around and preserving it for when humanity needs it. When when humanity needs it, doesn't mean humanity is going to be destroyed. More like the spiritual light is, is thinning, is disappearing. You know, things become more doct doctrinaire or too fundamentalist and losing, losing the aliveness, the spirit of any teaching. They come back and re-inject uh, something. Like I remember reading some scholarly studies about how the Mahayana Buddhism developed in Buddhism. You know, it started with Theravada, then the Mahayana, then, uh, then the Mahayana has a doctrine called Buddha nature, which the, and the originally the Theravada didn't have that doctrine. Buddha nature, which is that there is a nature for the human being that is eternal, that is perfect, right? That it has compassion. And, and uh, scholars believe that that element came from the Sermon. So that they affected Buddhism by giving Buddhism the idea of Buddha nature, would then, then take off, took off. This idea of Buddha nature became all kind of thing, the different Mahayana schools, including Zen and uh, Tibetan Buddhism. So that's just an example. But, you know, some people believe like the Sufism in Islam, that which is the mystical side of Islam, happened through the effect of the Sermon. So I myself, I mean... I'm not sure. I haven't met Sarmoon in person, <laughs> but I have a feeling of affinity with their teaching because I use many of Kirjif's ideas, which he, he said he took from the Sarmoon, like the three center, what he called three centers, the Enneagram, and, and other ideas. But also, my experience of the honey with the buzzing bees. And they're called the beehives. I said, so that made me feel connected, which well, that's the reason why I put that experience in the Enneagram book, because I wanted to give them credit. Because everybody now, every writer says, well, this is my book about the Enneagram. And I'm saying, no, the Enneagram came 
from those ancient people. They were the origin. They didn't develop it the way we have it now, but they began the whole thing. The original wisdom, and also their intention was spiritual, wasn't typology. It was about learning about our essential nature for our liberation, our, our completing our human potential. Now, you mentioned earlier that Gurdjieff himself never referred to the typologies. So how did he use the Enneagram? He used it in terms of what he called conscious shocks, like at different points he, in his work, he gives a shock to his students, and he has three conscious shocks. And also, he has what he calls chief features. He didn't describe them to his students, but he says everybody has a chief feature. He didn't call it type, he had a chief feature, and he had treated his student because of his knowledge of chief features. He just didn't divulge it to his students, so it's possible that what he knew something about the types. He just didn't, didn't talk about it. But he talked about the Enneagram in terms of law three, law seven, and each has a two, take the Enneagram as a combination of law three and law seven, you see? Like, uh, the Enneagram has nine points, and the big, in the middle of it is a triangle, representing point three, see? And then there is another uh, diagram that has six points in it, combining that with the triangle that makes seven, that's the law of seven. And Gurdjieff uses the law of seven and law of three a lot in his work. Given that there are these types, what I gather you've done in your, your writing is you start out with the, the fixations, which seem to be the, the problem areas uh, or the, even the lower qualities of, of each of these types and how an individual can work through the fixations to get to, ultimately, I think what you describe as the holy ideas associated with each type. Many people learn about the fixation as their type, and they think that's it. So, well, I'm a person who sort of tend to be more perfectionistic, uh, prone to anger, but I try to be good. And, uh, and there are, you know, a whole spectrum of how stuck one is in their fixation, how free from it. So fixation is not just, you know, uh, you know, a combination of, of, of traits and pattern, and everybody is exactly the same. It is the same traits and pattern, but one can be more attached, more, you know, patterned by them, and some people less, and they have more flexible. So the fixation can be more rigid or more flexible. But there are what they call, people call type. Most people just know about the fixations, which they call their type. People who are interested in typology, it's used in business now. In hiring people, they use type. It's used in the military, actually, <laughs> to know what type of person. And, it, and they are useful that way because it gives you a, lot, a great deal of information about this person, how they think, what kind of tendencies they have, and stuff like that. So, but that is staying at the surface of the knowledge of the Enneagram. Because it's true, I mean, like most human beings, they take their ego to be themselves. Right? 
most human it's normal i mean that's we all grow up with egos and ego is normal it's not a problem not a mistake we have to start with ego right and but ego is the first stage from my understanding i think which we discussed the night when we had our initial interviews that the ego is a as a stage of development need to go on further and people stay there believing that's it partly because the many people don't have a sense of the spiritual nature or they have a sense they think it's something external they just have a vision or light came into me they don't say oh that's me you see because if they feel the light or the presence that's me then they wonder what is this type then <laughs> what are all these characters traits what are all these patterns you know and then we learn that these patterns a lot of them are sort of sort of molded or uh, formed by the type by the fixation time but they all come from history from our uh, encounter with reality with people we develop different tendencies different traits but but not everybody develop them the same way because we have a tendency toward each type so two people having being under the same influence the same they grow differently if they are of different types because the the type it has a deep source in our spiritual nature that makes makes us be uh, even though we we develop those patterns and all those character traits which make us make us into a typology we are we still come out somewhat different but we are not as different as we are from another type the other type would be much more different what intrigued me is that as as you're describing each of these types and the stages that they move through, and, and often I think referring to your either your own personal experience or to the biographies of many great spiritual teachers who would be well known to uh, certainly to people in the spiritual community, if not the larger public. But I I enjoyed your descriptions of. Some of the physiological experiences, uh, for example, we talked about the nectar and the honey, but you also describe a pearl, if I remember correctly, a pearl emerging from the heart center. Yes. Yeah, that that is actually related to one of the one of the type has that more accessible to them. The pearl is one of the qualities of spiritual nature, but it is an unusual quality most people don't expect it because when it arises it makes us feel we are a true person a person of presence which for many teachings they don't think there is such a thing people what's called non-dual teachings for instance these they come on these days we say just everything is conscious everything is one and unity the individual is not that important the pearl says no, the individual is important, is made out of the same consciousness, but appears as a person with a personal life and relates to other human beings as persons. So that is that it has to do with point three of the Enneagram, actually. 
Some of the other experiences were similar to that of the pearl. If, if I recall correctly, perhaps coming out of the solar plexus or even the heart, something like a pearl, but I, I, as I recall, it had a different description, maybe larger than a pearl, different energy. In uh, our, our original interview, one of the interview was about the pearl. The other one is what I call the point, the point of existence. Mm. The point of existence is what I call the essential identity. And that has to do with point four. The essential identity when we feel we are authentic, unique, uniquely ourselves, but our uniqueness, authenticity has nothing to do with our body, with our mind, with our history. It is what we are in a fundamental, essential way. And when we experience it, it feels like brilliant star in the heart. And it gives us the sense, this is me. I am here. And that's why point four, they're always trying to be authentic. They're trying to be original. They're trying to be different and unique and special. And that gives them their kind of character which can be more distorted or less distorted depending on their history and depending on how they grew up. Some of them go to great lengths being special, deriding other people. Uh, some feel, no, I'm just creative and, you know, and they're into creativity. And because the point of light is represent actually the point of light. In many traditions, talk about the point of light, by the way, not only me. Um, like Nisargadatta Maharaj. I don't know if you hear, he's one of the Advaita Vedana teachers. Many He talks about the absolute, he is the absolute, which is this, this immense, you know, mysterious awareness. But he says the way to get there is to experience the I am first. And the I am takes you to that fundamental uh, absolute. And the I am, he says, is a point of light. I gave a lecture last year, actually, about about his teaching, trying to point out to everybody, hey, guys, nobody talk about the point of light. He talked about the point of light. That's his way of getting there. Mm. <laughs> you get to, uh, everybody talk about he's non-dual, he's this immense awareness. Yes, that's true. But his method is to experience yourself as this point of light first. So the point of light is really the expression of the absolute in the individual. See, it, it, it has all the qualities of the absolute nature in, in a point of light. Coming back to the um, these experiences, the point of light, the pearl, the honey, the nectar, these are things that are very profound spiritual realizations for the people who have them. And I, I think it's fair to say that modern psychology, you know, for all of its vast depth of knowledge of the human being, has nothing to say about such experiences. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're very right here, you know, Jeff. That's what I try to do in the books where you first interviewed me about the Pearl Beyond Price and the Point of Light. I was using psychological language, using the psychological theories prevalent at the time, trying to speak to psychologists and saying, here how far you go, if you go a little further, you get to this. 
it didn't take. I don't know how many of them actually got to read it and, and understand it. I was hoping that some psychologist would pick up on it and see that, yeah, their method is good, but it doesn't occur to them to ask the next question. And I th think that's largely because our scientific academic culture is is very materialistic and it, it doesn't want to recognize the idea that there is a, a dimension to the human being beyond space and time. Mostly that, mostly that, and mostly the psychologists don't know that in themselves. Most of them, I, mean, I imagine some do, but most of them not. And also the orientation of psychology is more oriented toward therapy. And therapy is just helping people with their problems, you know, the, to, to become good citizen, happy citizen. They're not oriented toward them having a spiritual illumination. They don't see it as their job and they themselves don't have the spiritual illumination. But I, in my books, I try to sort of nudge them a little bit that the psychology can go deeper. They don't have to go become a spiritual teaching. You know, Jung tried to do that, as you know. He introduced some kind of spiritual things in his uh, in his uh, work, you know, and he did, and he developed a whole school of it. You know, there are many Jungians, but his, his spirituality also doesn't go to the very essence of a spirituality. It stays somewhat mental. I thought one of the most fascinating things about your new book on the Enneagram is that you do refer to a variety of spiritual teachers, Nisargadatta being one of them, and showing how they fit into the typology and how their teaching is related to the type that they emerge from in the Enneagram. And that is true. I, I try to give example of people, both realize people and people stuck in their fixation to give to 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 show what's it like to be that type whether you're stuck or you're free and yeah so i mentioned people like nisargadatta for instance you know i i, I recognize nisargadatta the same type especially when i saw videos of him talking to his students and when you re see his videos beside being impressed by his presence and power, you see how fierce he is. He's fierce. He yells at his students. He screams at them. He's disappointed in them. He, <laughs> he's really something. Something. I mean, if he was in the U.S., he, he would be sued. <laughs> something or another. But he was really fierce because, you know, if they didn't get it, he was... He wasn't just going to sit there and keep talking, you know. And that fierceness, that strength, that fiery nature has to do with point eight. Because point eight has, has its uh, the quality that is inherent in it. Because each type has one quality that I call the natural endowment. Meaning, as we are born, as we grow up, there's one part of the quality that is easiest for us to recognize, easiest for us to understand, and tend to be a quality that we will want to emulate, be like, express. So, 
for point eight, that quality is what I call essential strength, which is a fiery quality, almost like red lava. Presence that is so hot and so full and so rich and so powerful. It's like full aliveness, full. So the type, the fixate type, I mean, the stuck type, it become like anger and being a bully and, you know, being vengeful and all of that. However, the type that are more free, like the Zagadata, he's just fierce and bold. He speak his mind and, he, you know, that. So he's a good example of a liberated eight. Gurdjieff, too, is a liberated eight. As, as I recall from what little I know about Nisargadatta, he, he was also a humble man. He spent his career manufacturing cigarettes, I think, is, is how he supported himself. He didn't try to try to profit from his disciples. Yes, he, he was a humble man because he was, you know, that, that's the thing, you know, Jeff, is about how you know that somebody who talks about spiritual teaching is truly realized and that the spiritual nature expresses itself in how they live their life. So a spiritual person, they teach and they're so somewhat arrogant and somewhat, you know, big headed, you know, they're not, they haven't got it completely. Because if somebody who's really spiritual, they tend to be humble, they tend to be, you know, forgiving, they tend to be kind, you know, and they can be strong and bold and all of that and clear. But uh, humility is, uh, is uh, humility is in the Enneagram, it's called one of the virtues. Because the Enneagram is the Enneagram of virtues. Just like the Enneagram of passion, that's the next Enneagram from fixation is called the passions, which mean the emotional qualities that drive that type. And the antidote to them, which is in the spiritual side, called the virtues. You see, so humility is one of the virtues, just like serenity is, you know, and uh, courage and... Um, truthfulness and love and, you know. So the process of spiritual evolution is one, I gather, of moving from the fixations into the, maybe into the passions, which are related to the fixations, I suppose, and, and then into the virtues. And then ultimately, you refer to the holy ideas, which I gather are, are even beyond the virtues. Yeah, yeah. So the next enneagram after the virtues, the holy ideas. Yeah, look at it this way: the virtues has to do with the heart, how the heart is uh, liberated. The passion when the heart is not liberated, the usual heart that is angry and envious, this and that. You know, the very the virtues is the heart that is open, that is humble, that is kind, that is loving. And uh, holy idea has to do with the mind, which is the view of reality, how we see reality, how our understanding view of reality. So um, the holy ideas, in some sense, is an antidote to the fixation themselves. The fixation are controlled by a view of reality, a mental view. And uh, 
But the way it appears is like each uh, each fixation has at the depth of it a delusion about reality. I call it delusion, which is a wrong view about reality, some kind of a view about reality, how it is that is off. And the holy idea is more the correct view about reality. And if you get the correct view, that can change our mind, how we look at things, and that can liberate us from the fixation in a big way. Because the, the views, the holy ideas, are, are very profound, uh, deep spiritual truth. When I read your book, I couldn't help but think, you know, which type am I? And I, I'm not really a person who's been exposed to the Enneagram, hardly at all. At all. But I thought of myself, I'm probably a two. And I, I gather that as a two, I would move, or ideally, from the, the fixation toward the holy idea by first at least getting in touch with the virtue. Yeah, virtue is the easiest. And the virtue for two is humility. And the holy idea is holy freedom. True freedom. So if you're a two, you know, I don't tend to type people. I don't like to do it. And I think one thing about typing is that many of the audiences might not know the Enneagram, you know, might not know the types. They might get interested and know them. But the point is to know that the Enneagram is a kind, a type of psychology, an ancient one, that tells us something about our mind, our emotion, our character, that is different from Freudian psychology or uh, modern psychology, like, uh, you know, cognitive psychology or Jungian psychology. It's an old psychology, but the psychology is connected to a spiritual dimensions. So there's a psychological dimension, there's a emotional dimension, there's a spiritual dimension. And so people who, want, who are interested in that can learn it, but also they might not read it, they might not understand it, but the, what we're talking about, about the, that our character is connected to a spiritual quality is true about everybody. Somebody doesn't really need to know their type. Now, just knowing the basic knowledge, this basic knowledge can be very useful, even for somebody who's not familiar with the Enneagram knowledge. And I just read your book and intuitively thought that must be the closest description that I have of my own self-image would be two. But I, I guess maybe for some people there are actually written tests you can take. From what I understand, there are people who've developed tests you could take online to so get, get your uh, type. But I think the best way is to sort of uh, read and study and see which one you you seem more appropriate. They seem to res you feel you resonate with, and you might want to read more than one book because there are different teachers. Each one has a slightly different take. See, it's a it's a very big field. There are hundreds of writers now, and uh, I will take some of the original writers who, who first wrote, like Naranjo. Alan Palmer, you know, uh, Ross, and uh, 
and uh, Sandra Mitri, those people who, who were still close to the spiritual part and wrote the originally, later on it developed and different people added their thing, which are useful, but I don't know how faithful they are to the original descriptions. We started by talking about Oscar Ichazo, the Bolivian teacher who founded the school known as Arica. I know back in the 1970s, it was a very popular spiritual approach. As I recall, John Lilly was influenced by it. I haven't heard anything about the Arica school subsequently. I'm assuming it sort of died off with Oscar Ichazo, or it has merged into other teachings such as your own. Is there anything further we can say about Ichazo himself? Yes. Arica school continued and still exists. And Ichazo has lived for a long time in Hawaii, in Maui, and he died, passed away last year. But from what I understand, the school still exists, still continues. I don't know in what shape, but I know some people in it. The, so the school continues in a smaller way than it used to be. It's more contained, a bunch of people in it who are really faithfully in it, following the practices that Ichazo gave them. And uh, I think his wife he, that he left behind is part of the leadership there. But I don't know the leadership. I know some of the members there. And that's how I know the, the school continues. But it, I remember it was very well known in New York, for instance. They, 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 were, they were giving workshop in New York uh, a few decades ago. But they moved to Hawaii. and then, yeah. So Oscar Chazo is credited by the fact that he's the one who introduced the types. He called them aneagons rather than aneagrams, and, and yeah, he had a yeah. hundred and eight of them, as I recall. Yeah. You know, my original book, my uh, Facet of Unity book about the holy ideas, the introduction was written by Oscar Ichazo. Mm. I asked him, he wrote it because he, he acknowledged that teaching as good and I mean for him to approve of a teaching and usually he didn't do it with anybody else <laughs> but he wrote a nice introduction I'd like to go back to the experience we discussed earlier the experience of the honey and the buzzing of of all of the bees that, that you described and and the reason is because I had a similar experience myself at, at one time. And I interpreted it maybe a little differently. I, it, to me, it seemed as if I was coming to a, a state or a stage in, in my own consciousness where it, I, th I think of it as a hive mind, as if there's a, a lot of bees buzzing around and I'm one of the bees. Well, I mean, that's true. I mean, that's how the Sarmoon see themselves. Each one of them is a bee. So who knows? You might be connected to the Sarmoon somehow. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's an interesting thought. It seemed to me it, it represented a 
Well, I'll, I'll fill you in a little more, if I, if, if I may, yeah. because I had that experience many years ago when uh -huh. I was approached by a very small group of, uh, I guess I'd have to call them psychic practitioners. This yeah. was even before the era of remote viewing, but a small yeah. group of people who were doing psychic work and they had, they thought I would be a candidate to join their group. And they had me enter into a meditative hypnotic mm -hmm. state and describe what was happening. And I described mm -hmm. the, this hive mind. And they said, that that's it. That's what we want because people who can enter into this hive mind state are capable of doing this sort of parapsychological work, uh, which uh -huh. I, I did for a while with that group. And we haven't talked about the parapsychological dimensions of, of your work more. We've discussed, you know, inner experiences of a spiritual nature. But do you touch on on that? Do you the psychic side uh, of uh, spiritual evolution? Well, we do, but I see it as a byproduct mm -hmm. of, of spiritual realization that can naturally appear for some people, but not everybody. So in my work, I don't focus on developing para, you know, uh, those capacities. That, uh, we don't work on that, but they develop naturally for some people, different kinds for different people. But the spiritual realization reveals the basis and the principles where that is possible. You see mm -hmm. how parapsychology is, happens because the parapsychology, basically, the people researchers look at it as certain capacities, as thing at a distance or things like that. But in the physical world, appearing in the physical world, while the spiritual essence, the, the spiritual nature shows why is that possible, you see. And it depends on the individual, on their, on their proclivities, different kinds can develop. I know many spiritual traditions suggest that the, these paranormal abilities are very real, but that they're ultimately a distraction uh, from spiritual growth and, and can even be a pitfall if one becomes ego attached to them. Yeah, if, you, if they become a focus, it's like you're focusing on the byproduct instead, uh, instead of focusing on the real thing. And that's why they become a distraction. See, because they are exciting, interesting, and all of that. And if one goes in that direction, you know, I remember, for instance, the story, a Tibetan story, they talk the story of Melarepa. And if you hear Melarepa, Melarepa is one of the saints of uh, one of the school of uh, Tibetan Buddhism. Originally, they said he was one of those parapsychologists, you know, you know guy, uh, guy with a great deal of parapsychological, you know, capacities. He was able to fly and do all kinds of things. And then, uh, and he was like a magician. They called him a magician at that time. Yeah, because he had all these powers. And then until he met his teacher, who called Marpa, he is, uh, who, who was the sort of, 
and Marpa became his tea. He accepted his tea, he, he, he accepted Marpa his teaching as his teacher. And by accepting, he took all that power, all that interest, and put it into his spiritual practice. And it became one of the most enlightened, most saintly people in, in the tradition of Tibetan Buddhism. And he forgot about flying and doing all these things. And when people ask him about him, he said, no, that's not what matter. What matter is to be enlightened. I think that's a good lesson for our viewers, because I know on this uh, channel, I focus an awful lot on the parapsychological dimensions. Yeah, I saw some of your interviews, yes. So it's, it's always good to remind people that there's more to life than just that. You see, I think the parapsychological, why some people are interested in it, is that the parapsychological in some way can to some degree be measured can be sort of somewhat verified, not easily but verified. And because of that, you can speak to the spiritual community. I mean, not spiritual, to the scientific community and say there is something not physical, but verifiable. That is one way of introducing into the scientific world that there is more to reality than physics and matter. I think that's big part of the interest uh, of the study in parapsychology. It's a transition from the spiritual to the physical. Absolutely. From a scientific point of view, it's, it's part of uh, one of the biggest mysteries we're confronted with, ultimately, the mystery of consciousness itself. But I think your work really focuses on aspects of consciousness that go beyond the parapsychological and I suspect are ultimately far more profound. Well, they are profound in the sense you could be very great psychic and able to do all these things, but you won't be free. Doesn't mean you're free, doesn't mean you're fulfilled, doesn't mean you're complete. And spiritual realization gives us a sense of authenticity of who we are. We are our true being. And then there's a sense of meaning at our life, a sense of fulfillment that we fulfilled our function, that our potential is naturally arising. And that is much more liberating, much more fulfilling, and plus the ecstasy that comes with it. And the great discoveries, I mean, the, the spiritual uh, dimension is a spiritual world. It's like we know the physical world, you know how big it is now, how many billions of light years, how many galaxies, how many things. All. And the spiritual world is like, that is just the surface. Mm-hmm. There are there is many dimension, many other forms and worlds and all that 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 we can explore. So to be in this to realize about spiritual reality is both to be true to yourself. You're, you are what you truly are, not what the culture made you to be or what history made you to be and you feel contented and fulfilled in being who you are and happy naturally and able to discover things about reality that most people 
can't even think about. And they're very interesting. Like I tell you, one of my discoveries, for instance, that are not in this book, I discovered at some point when I was experiencing the absolute, you know, that this I got talked about, I was, I was this deep, vast infinity beyond the world, right? Deep, vast, profound, real, and it is the source and the nature of consciousness. I was experiencing that for some years. I was like most of the 90s. I was living in that place as that. But uh, then I noticed at some point, everything was in the same except something at some point appeared in, within it. Something that looked like almost like a meteor. And I said, how can that be? Everything is in the surface of that. What, what can be within that vastness? So I explored that, and that then led me to experience it and realize, oh, it is a spiritual manifestation I had never seen before. And when I experienced it and realized it, the experience that everything, I am everything, and everything is infinite, right? It changed to all that infinity is within me as the individual. That all points of time and space are at one point. This is the, the, what's called now... Non-locality. Yeah, it's non-locality as part of it. And in t entanglement. This shows everything is entangled. Yes. And that one point is, has all the points in it, not only all the points, all the times. Like within this moment, I have all of my past, all my future, all the time, the whole world. And that can become an actual experience, an interesting realization. And the value of it is that I feel so close to everybody because everybody's inside me, I'm inside them, which is very different from the experience of the vast and the absolute where, well, we are all made out of the same substance, the same reality. Here we're not just made out of all substance. We are we are actually singularly each other in some fundamental deep way. So it is a different kind of spirituality. Yeah, the principle is called the holographic principle. You know the hologram, each part of it has all parts in it. Oh yes. That's that's how it is. I call it the hologram. It's like you as Jeffrey, because you're part of a hologram, you have all the rest of the hologram in you. It's a matter of just recognizing, seeing it. So that's, when I say new discoveries, that I'm just giving an example of a discovery that is not just being aware or consciousness, but you know, going to reality manifest things in it. Spiritual world is so rich. See. But that takes us far away from the Enneagram and the qualities in it. You know. Well, I know that the Enneagram is an important part of your work, but also, as you stated earlier, it's just one piece of a much lar 
of, of, of a larger picture, Hamid. And uh, I'm looking forward to further conversations with you since you've written a dozen books since the previous time we spoke some 30 years ago. I hope that we can get together many more times because I know you've had uh, numerous explorations that you have been able to detail with uh, exquisite precision in your various writings. And I would love to be able to share that more with the audience of New Thinking Aloud. I'll be happy. I would like to do that, Jeff. It's good. Then you're right. The Enneagram is one facet of my work. I use the Enneagram as, because my work uses different kinds of psychologies, like Freudian psychology. I use, you know, object relation, self-psychology, you know, attachment theory. But I also use the Enneagrams. They're not the psychologists. It's ancient. And uh, all those psychologies, I can take them to a spiritual dimension because they, they, the reality is interconnected. Nothing is separate. Well, you were talking about how the Enneagram is just a small part of, of your teachings, but that many people want to go more deeply into the Enneagram, and so your book is a good resource for that purpose. Yes. It, it is, I, I, because I try to take the Enneagram a little deeper than most books do by connecting to its spiritual roots. And basically, the message of the book that the Enneagram of type has spiritual roots and that each type has its own unique spiritual root. Like point two, for instance, it had appear as the helper, as somebody who's trying to help and give, and this, that's the, what I call the ego ideal, the idealized being helpful, being there, assisting, and all of that. And if it becomes too distorted, become more manipulative to get attention, all of that. But originally, is to be helpful, to share, and all of that, because at the depth, the quality that uh, that animates that type is what I call merging love, love that has to do with connection, has to do with connection, nourishment, sweetness, closeness, intimacy, you know, and it is a kind of love when you feel it, it feels like liquid sunlight that has a melting quality of the heart. And it is the essence of really any true connection between human beings. And it is the, it is the essence of connecting to the divine. It's, it's both in term human life. It's connecting to, to other people, connecting to nature, and connecting to the divine. Because this quality of the true nature is, is a love, it's a quality of heart. It's a kind of nectar but of a sweetness that is not found on earth. Like some sweetnesses, like some some uh, love has a flavor that's similar. You could see it in, in, in earth. Like some love feels like apricot. So, you know, like apricot, that's, that's a feeling of fulfillment. Some love feel like pomegranate. I call it passionate love. Zesty, sort of hot passion, love, but the uh, merging love, I call it merging gold or, or, or merging love, it's like it's sweet in a way, but I, I, I want to be able to say like what? 
And when it is there, it opens the heart in such a way that you're naturally giving. You you want to help because you're connected. There's a sense of connection, there's a sense of community. It's the essence of community, the essence of connection, the essence of helpfulness, the essence of nourishment. And it is really the, the, the specific love that mother and baby have together. When the good mother is content with her baby and she is with the baby in a way that is helpful. We all, if we had good mothering, we had some sense of that love. That is the essence of point two, which later become, the point, the point two forgets the, that special, because they never, they were not self-reflective when they were experiencing it. So they don't know it, they forget it, but they have a sense of something like that. And that becomes in the mind something they want. They want to be like. So that way they develop being helpful, being there, being, you know, of assistance, of giving and sharing and and relationship is important and all of that. That becomes point two. So if point two recognize what is what I call the ego ideal, what is, what is the ideal of how they want to be and see that that is a reflection of something real that is not emotional and not mental, that might open the door to this quality of essential, you know, melting kind of love. And if they experience it, they experience presence in one's quality. That become a door into the spiritual world then. It, it's beautifully written. I want to encourage all of our viewers to take a look at it if you're interested in the Enneagram. And uh, stay tuned because we plan further interviews. And uh, I know you have so much more to share. And I'm just uh, thrilled to think that we can uh, reopen the conversations that we began 30 years ago. That would be great. You know, I, 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 I'm thinking of several books that we might want to discuss. I published recently also a book about love called um, and, uh, Love Unveiled. I have a series of books about love. That was the beginning. Another one is going to come next year about divine love. That might be a topic we could deal with. Before that, I did two books related to a topic, one of them called Runaway Realization, one called The Alchemy of Freedom, which have to do after you realize what kind of reality appears, what kind of possibilities experience, the, the mysteries of spirit that, uh, that, that are awaiting us to discover through our human consciousness. This, this human being is amazing kind of lens into reality. We talk about this uh, new telescope out in space to see the farthest regions of, uh, of the universe. We are something like that, but we are many of those. We, 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 feel we can reach the farthest into reality, not just the universe. The human being is kind of a telescope. Into inner space. You've been exploring the frontiers of inner space and how they interface with our psychological reality now with, a, I have to say, a diamond-like focus uh, for decades. So uh, it will be so wonderful to have future conversations, Habib. Yeah, it will be nice. It will be nice to talk together, Jeff.
I find it very pleasant and enjoyable talking with you. And I could tell that you have experienced the honey. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is briefly. I certainly can't say I've stayed there very long, but even one second of it can be memorable. It's something you don't forget. Can be transformative, exactly. That, that's the thing about spiritual presence. And when you recognize, when you feel it, it's like it's nothing like not like it in the world in life. Yeah, it's like it opens up. Oh, there's more to me or to reality than I ever thought, and that is quite inspiring for for true real. Well, thank you so much for being with me today, Hamid. Good, good being with you, and we'll we'll talk again. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us.